Last week, uh, or last episode rather, uh, we began to ask the question, does a Calvinist reading of Romans chapter 9 as support for the Calvinist doctrine of unconditional election, does it hold up in dialogue with a non-Calvinist? And I was joined by two guests, one of them Calvinist, one of them Arminian, uh, and we began to discuss that question. We continue to discuss that question with the same two guests uh, in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. So this past weekend, or no, not this past weekend, but the weekend before, uh, was our seventh annual Rethinking Hell conference, uh, which went off uh, without a hitch. It was it was a fantastic event, uh, one of the best conferences I think that we've had so far. Um, if you weren't able to make it, but uh, you would still like to access the recordings sooner than we make them available to the wider public, uh, consider going to patreon.com slash rethinkinghell, and you can uh, sign up to to be a patron, and that will grant you access to those recordings um, here within the next few days. We're just uh, making, we're just weaving the slides and stuff into um, the recordings right now, and so those will be up real soon. Um, it was a fantastic event, and um, I won't go into details right now, but I'll ask you for your prayers. Um, an, an, a book opportunity arose as a result of that conference, um, probably the most compelling book uh, proposal that I have had, uh, you know, I've, I, those of you who have known me for some time know that I tried to pitch a book proposal to some big publishers, Baker Academic, uh, Zondervan Academic, IVP Academic, and some others. Uh, I've, I've done that a few times and I've always gotten shot down because, uh, well, for one reason or another, but usually the main reason is because of my lack of a terminal degree. Um, but the uh, opportunity that arose at the conference is one that I'm hopeful and optimistic will be received more favorably than those past ones. So if you'd keep me in your prayers, um, I'd, I'd appreciate it. I'm not going to say any more about it than that, uh, but be on the lookout for additional announcements if, if I'm able to secure a publisher, and then I'll be able to tell you all about it. Um, but anyway, that went really well, and, uh, and I was also really pleased with the discussion that I had last episode of The Apologetics between my friend Robert Wiesner, uh, who's a Calvinist, and my, uh, I, I, I'll count him a friend now, Dan Chapa, who is an Arminian. Uh, the conversation went really well, and I'm looking forward to continuing that discussion today. If you haven't already watched uh, that conversation then you might want to um, not watch this episode right now live, or, or if you're watching on demand, don't go watch it, you know, stop this recording, go watch the previous episode, episode seven of The Apologetics, so that you can see the first half of the discussion that we're going to be continuing in today's episode. Like last time, um, the episode was recorded in advance, uh, the discussion was recorded in advance. I'm talking to you live right now. In fact, I'll say hi in the chat uh, just to prove that it is me. Um, but, uh, but the recording of the discussion or the discussion itself was pre-recorded, and I'm going to air that in just a minute. Um, but I will try to interact here and there in the chat during the conversation. Um, 
after this episode's over, uh, or after the discussion's over, I'll come back in and I'll bid you adieu. Maybe I can field a question or two before I do. Um, and then two weeks from today, I will do a, uh, a topic in which I'll be teaching the whole time live. It won't be a pre-recorded discussion or anything. Um, and I'm thinking that what I'll cover is uh, the millennium of Revelation chapter 20, and I'll be offering an amillennialist reading of Revelation 20. If you um, have watched the episode of The Apologetics a few episodes ago where I introduced you to the topic of preterism, you recall that um, the preterism, futurism, historicism, idealism debate uh, is just one of multiple eschatological debates within Christianity, another one of which is um, uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And uh, I am an amillennialist, but I have a uh, an unusual, an uncommon reading of Revelation 20, the millennium there, that, that doesn't exactly line up with other typical amillennialist readings. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say that the more popular amillennialist reading has less going for it than the premillennialist reading. It just so happens that my amillennialist reading is even better than that. So if you're interested, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a tease. Hopefully it gets you to come back here in two weeks. Um, but I'll just leave it there. Um, and because the discussion goes on for just about as long as it did in the previous episode, I'll go ahead and stop blabbering my mouth and go ahead and uh, continue with my discussion. Round two of my discussion with Robert Wiesner and Dan Chapa discussing whether or not Romans chapter 9 supports a conditionalist reading, uh, or sorry, whether or not Romans 9 supports a, the Calvinist doctrine of uncondi unconditional election. Enjoy! Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is Chris Date, and I'm continuing my discussion from last episode uh, with my friends and guests Robert Wiesner and Dan Chapa. Uh, we were talking last episode about Romans 9 and whether in that chapter Paul uh, supports either implicitly or otherwise, the doctrine of Calvinistic conditional election, or I mean unconditional election. Uh, my friend and guest Robert Wiesner uh, is a Calvinist and is defending um, the notion that it does, and uh, my friend and guest Dan Chapa is an Arminian and is arguing that it does not. Um, now, I want to explain where we're going to be going in today's episode. By the way, just as a side note for viewers who might be wondering why I look so different from last time, it's because, number one, I've lost my glasses in the past couple of days, uh, and so I've got this bare face that I don't normally have. And then, number two, um, I uh, my wireless earbuds, I forgot to charge them since last episode, and so I've got to wear these big clunky things. So I apologize in advance if my appearance is jarring, um, but the way I see it, my appearance is usually jarring anyway. Um, but that having said, been said, let me explain the directions that we're going to go uh, today, the, what we're going to cover today. First, I want to continue the discussion from where we left off last time. Actually, you know what? Before I explain where we're going to go, I should probably introduce my guest. So let me do that really quick. Um, Robert, uh, thanks. You've, you've now been on the show twice. This will be your third time. Um, and of course, you and I have interacted in other venues as well. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be back uh, digging in uh, the text again with Dan. I just want to say that I know he's not reprobate because he's wearing a Dallas Cowboys shirt today. So uh, we're on the same page with that. Regardless of our, our differences, at least we can agree in lamenting the Cowboys season thus far, but hoping for a brighter future. 
Yeah. From as far as I'm concerned, you're both reprobate for giving a lick about <laughs> football when what really matters is hockey. Um, oh. But that having been said, uh, so let me turn now and, and uh, welcome my other guest and friend Dan Chapa. Dan, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great this morning. Thank you very much. Um, uh, pleasure to be back and speaking with both you guys, and um, just happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. All right, now let me explain to viewers where we're going to be going today. First, we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which is a discussion about whether Paul's emph emphatic statements that it isn't based on human willing or exertion, whether that has to do with uh, the fact or process of being saved. Uh, in other words, you're not you're not uh, you being saved is not at all dependent upon any act of your own human will or exertion, or whether instead it's the plan of salvation, the decision to make salvation available to anyone who believes whether that itself is not based on any human will or exertion that's where we left off last time we're going to continue with the discussion on that then we'll turn to Paul's discussion of or his use of Pharaoh leading into his hypothetical objection in verse 19 which is often argued to be sort of the the crux for determining um, whether Paul has in mind something like unconditional election and then finally we'll turn to what we'll spend the majority of our time on which is Paul's use of of the Potter Clay analogy, which is his answer to the hypothetical objection that he raises. So that's sort of the terrain for the ground, or, or the map of the terrain we're going to cover today. And um, and with that introduction out of the way, I'll go ahead and get us started. So Dan, I want to start with you. Uh, last time we uh, left off our discussion talking about Paul's emph emphatic statements in Romans nine that it isn't, uh, it doesn't depend on human willing or exertion. And it was Roberts, in my understanding that that precludes uh, the notion that the person who is being saved, uh, th that that person's salvation depends in any way on his or her um, human willing and exertion. Um, but you propose the possibility that, in fact, what isn't based on human willing or exertion is the plan of salvation. That is, we cannot um, will God or or strong arm God into making salvation available to specific groups of people. Maybe he did, you know, we can't tell God, Hey, you should only save Jews or, or you should only save Gentiles or, you know, you should save anybody who merits it or you shouldn't or whatever. We, we don't get to tell God how to decide, um, whom to save and on what conditions that's entirely his prerogative. Um, do you want, if, if I'm understanding that correctly, or, or even if I'm not, maybe you can, um, unpack that a little bit and, and just to get the ball rolling and give us some stuff to talk about. Um, elaborate a bit on how you see what you see Paul meaning when he talks about it not depending on human willing or exertion. Thank you. Um, and actually, that was that was quite accurate. So um, that's great. I was able to get a little bit of my point across, which is helpful. So um, when you take the expression sola fide, right, and you just boil it down to its very essence by grace through faith, here Paul is narrowing his focus even further to by grace. Right, and he's focused on God's grace, which is a free gift. It's not only unearned, but it's also unconditioned. So when um, we talk about the plan of salvation, it's not as if our faith is why God sent His Son to die on the cross, right, and offer salvation to believers. So in First Corinthians, when it says, you know, um, um, God chose the, um, to save through the foolishness of preaching those who believe, that choice 
wasn't conditioned on those who believed. God just freely did that. Um, likewise, in First uh, Peter, when he talks about his son that's uh, for, foreordained before the foundation of the world, right? that's not based on our faith. So none of that is based on faith. Now, the only limitation that I put on it is we can't interpret um, Romans 9, 15, um, or 15 and 16 in a way that contradicts sola fide, but I don't think here he's doing that. He's talking more broadly about the plan of salvation, and God can save whoever he believes. Now, um, and one last point that I'll make is God could have chosen any way or any group to save, anyone or any way. Um, he chose to save through faith, but that's not in the text here. But here he's stamping his absolute sovereignty that it's up to him. Um, but uh, just to, to make this point a little more clear, God could have chosen, let's say, covenantal gnomism as the plan of salvation, but he didn't do that. He chose to save through faith. Okay, now, Robert, I want to ask you for your thoughts on that, but I, I just wanted to observe that this sounds similar to the discussion that we Calvinists and, and non-Calvinists have around Ephesians 2.8, right? So in Ephesians 2.8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And some, I think, less informed Calvinists have sometimes, including myself, before I became more familiar with what it is that I believe and why, um, have argued that... Uh, uh, what Paul is saying is the gift of God and is not your own doing is the faith through which um, we have been saved in, in that first part of verse 8. But as um, Greek grammarians will point out, the thing that is not your own doing and is, and is, is the gift of God does not match the gender of the word faith. Uh, faith is feminine, whereas um, the, uh, the, the, the pronoun, this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, that's um, neuter. Uh, and so so this has been argued by non-Calvinists to mean that it's the whole shebang, you know, the whole by grace you have been saved through faith, that whole thing that is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, whether or not your faith itself, uh, and, you know, which, which um, brings you into the scope of salvation is your own doing is not something that this text is, is uh, precluding. Um, I think that's interesting. But Robert, if what would you say in response to Dan's explanation of the not willing and exerting part of Romans 9? Yeah, it's obviously true that God isn't strong-armed into, um, you know, what, what we might call a plan of salvation where, um, you know, the, the, the conditions are, are something that he doesn't get to assign or something like that. Like, obviously, we agree on that, that uh, God establishes the condition. That's absolutely true. What we disagree on is whether or not that's relevant to what Paul actually argues here in Romans 9. And this is why I think the, the discussion that we had before, Chris, on the grammar uh, and uh, trying to understand what's emphatic by looking at Paul's Greek is so important. So if you look at uh, beginning in uh, verse 15, where he draws on the allusion to uh, Exodus 33:19, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's in a section where it, it's sort of like the first remnant text of the Old Testament, where God saves a group within the people of Israel, uh, while they're all, the text says, stiff-necked and idolatrous, and God determines that he's going to uh, save this people, even though they all deserve his judgment, God is right to want to wipe out the nation, he determines to save them. And and that's the inference that Paul draws from that, and he uses uh, these participles that express like this gnomic sense, and, and it's talking about individuals. What type of person does Paul 
uh, think that God has mercy on, not the individual, right? These, this is a substantival participle, not the willing one, not the striving one, uh, but it's contingent on God, who is, is the mercying God, right? The, the God who has mercy. And uh, then we get, again, in verse 18, I will have mercy, or on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. So uh, the idea here. Or, or he hardens who, whom he wills, and he um, uh, has mercy on whom he wills. So Paul's whole point here is about God's uh, mercy uh, extended to one I- Israelite and not to another. This isn't about plans of, of salvation versus other uh, conceivable plans of salvation. This is about God uh, being merciful to one and, and hardening others the same lump we're, we're going to get into the potter clay analogy later um i think it refers to israel and um this is where it's also important to uh pay attention carefully to uh this language of the of the will here you know dan uh raises a couple times last time and and again about you know we need to see this consistently with sola fide and i'm like yeah but we're not talking about sola fide here we're, we're looking back at election calling uh, mercy, which I think Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30 places as prior to justification. So fide is about justification. We're, we're getting back behind justification here in Romans 9 to ask, why is it that most Israelites do not believe in Jesus? And, and when we look at Paul's language and he talks about the divine will versus the human will, he only shoots down the human will, verse 16, and is not according to the one who wills. Uh, but then throughout the rest of the text, it's about upholding the divine will, even with regard to uh, the extending of mercy to individuals. And so, uh, you know, that that would be my response. I just don't think that is 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 tethered tightly enough to the text. I think we can affirm and agree on a lot that's true, but it just uh, gets really quickly away from uh, the the weeds of Paul's argument. Before I turn back to you, Dan, um, I want to push back a little bit um, and try to play the devil's advocate or the Armenian's advocate, as it were, um, <laughs> uh, and, and ask. So. Uh, it seems to me that an Arminian or, or any other non-Calvinist could um, could affirm what you just said about the emphasis on the, the Paul's emphasis being on the mercy shown to a group of people rather than mercy yeah. being a reflection of a plan of salvation. Um, and what they could say is that it's similar. So, so take take how they explain corporate election. They would say that God elects a people, but the people that He elects is a group into which people place themselves via their faith. Um, now, I'm not saying I accept the, that notion. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a good explanation for the election language. But let's say that it is. Well, then what what Paul may be saying is that indeed God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. But the one upon whom He has mercy or compassion is this group. In to which people, by their will, uh, add themselves or, or remove themselves. Um, it seems to me like that is arguably, a, you know, a plausible way of applying it. Do, do, if 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 Dan were to go that route, and we'll turn to him for a second to see if that has anything to do with what he would say, how would you respond to that, Robert? Is is it possible yeah. that that what you said can be true, and nevertheless, people make themselves by their own will part of this group upon whom God has mercy? I don't think it is. So, you know, you, we use that language of will again. The human will is only shot down. This is the, the verb fellow. Uh, it appears a few times as a verb and once as a participle, the one who wills, uh, to thelontos in uh, verse 16. And there it is to say it's not according 
to human willing, right? And and the the point that Paul is is making is that it's the divine will that has mercy, and his mercy is, um, you know, connected to this calling that creates the covenant people. And when we get into the potter clay language, uh, we might have time to to talk a little bit more about this. I definitely want to get into the uh, Second Temple Jewish literature, but I think Paul's language is closest uh, when with regard to uh, his mercy language and this this potter clay analogy to uh, Jewish writers who use it to describe uh, the the way that God transfers somebody into the covenant community. It's not his response to their aligning themselves with the covenant community, but God's moving people by a call, by his mercy, and forming this covenant people in this way. So I think that uh, that is a common explanation, but I think it's the opposite of the argument that Paul is making. I think Paul is saying that that God's call and God's mercy uh, creates the, the 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 covenant community, and that community is a saved community. We could talk about corporate election in that in that way, but the question is, how does what what what's the ultimate cause of one being brought into that? I think when we examine Paul's uh, predestination and election language in its Jewish milieu, it, it's actually uh, pretty. There's a real strong case, as I've I've argued. Um, elsewhere that uh, he sees it as that predestinarian kind of election that, that brings individuals into that uh, corporate uh, elect community. All right. So, well then Dan, let's, let's, I, I'm interested to hear how you would continue this, um, this argument uh, or, or this, yeah. How, how would you respond to what Robert has here laid out as an argument for thinking that what doesn't depend on human will or exertion is, is even the very decision, you know, the very decision to um, be a recipient of God's mercy, you know, uh, by, by faith. Sure. So for starters, in terms of the plan of salvation, the way I see it in not to rehash the past, but if you look at the opening presentation I gave, I, I stressed sola fide and how it's in Romans 9 and the, the role that it plays in Romans 9. And the opposite side of that is the uh, covenantal nomism, the, the Jews basically thinking that the plan of salvation was um, through um, ethnicity and the works of the law and it and so the debate essentially was sola fide versus works of the law and you can see that building up and i think that is the objection in verse 14 you know is there injustice on god's part could be translated unrighteousness on god's part and meaning uh not being faithful to his covenant promises to the nation of israel so that's why i kind of see it as the plan of salvation um and that and that is the main difficulty I have with many of the, the big Calvinist commentators like Mu and Triner and things like that because they don't tell us what Sola Fede is doing here. Um, they know that it's there, but they don't know what it's doing there. So let me, yeah, let's go. I, yeah. Okay, go ahead, Robert. So you get justification language brought up again by the time we get to verse 30 but that, that that's a new pericope i think it's a it's a new step in in paul's argument of course we need to see romans 9 to 11 as as a, a single unit right um but here we're not talking so you know we, if we want to say and this is what i think Mu and schreiner are getting at if we want to say that justification by faith is is you know lingering in the background well of course like that's what romans uh, uh, is all about, right? Like that—that's Paul's thesis from from the get-go in in chapter one, sixteen and seventeen. But uh, again, that's why I, I've said what what we're doing is uh, having laid out Paul having laid out his his case for uh, justification on the basis of Christ-oriented faithfulness rather than uh, law-oriented works. Um, he now gets in to answer the question: Why is it? 
that the Jewish people do not believe. And so he's he's getting behind belief. He's getting behind justification uh, into the world of election calling mercy, right? Where he says that God creates his people, uh, names them even before they were born or had done anything good or evil to go back to the Jacob and Esau illustration that, that Paul draws on as, as a type of what's going on with Israel in, in his day. So um, I think that, that we're, we're, we're not... Yeah, I just, I, I just think that this is importing something, laying something over Paul's argument at this point that doesn't seem to be uh, what he's trying to do at this point. He, he He's trying to give explanation for why they're not justified by faith. And he, to do that, he, he appeals to the divine will with regard to mercy, uh, even though he holds out, uh, you know, emphatically, adamantly, their responsibility for, for, for not believing as we, we get into 9.30 and, uh, through 10. Uh, but he, even there, he, he talks about that being part of the divine plan. So, uh, yeah, I just don't think that, that, that really works in, in uh, following Paul's argument closely, Dan. So I, the way I'd say, uh, it, would it be an interesting exercise one, one day, um, we could just take Romans 9 and you know, you take a yellow highlighter and a blue highlighter, and I'll do the same. And we'll highlight which aspects are talking about the nation of Israel and which aspects are talking about salvation, right? I think what we'd find is different highlights on different spots. And the reason why I see more aspects about salvation in some things focused on the nation of Israel as they are is because I see sola fide playing a major role. Now, obviously it's there, you know, Calvinist commentaries say it's there, but I just think we see it functioning different. So anyways, I'll, I'll leave it at that, um, yeah. you know, but uh, um, I think... Before we leave it there, Dan, let me let me um, ask you a question that that occurs to me. Um, you know this this it's interesting. This passage in Exodus thirty three, um, where Yahweh tells Moses, "I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and show mercy on whom I will show mercy." Um, it's interesting that that there it isn't immediately clear in its context what Yahweh is trying to say there. I mean, I think it's close enough in proximity to Moses's intercession for his people that um that he's saying, you know, I will I will show mercy to Israel uh, because I've chosen to show mercy to Israel, you know, or something along those lines. Um, but, he, or I suppose, arguably, it could be that he's saying, I've, I'm, I'm, I'll be gracious to you, Moses, because Moses has just been saying, um, this is, I, I want to know that you will be with me, that you'll show me favor. Um, so, I mean, arguably there, it could be what he's saying, but either way, it seems to me as if what Yahweh is saying in that original context in Exodus 33, is that he will be gracious and show mercy to individuals, specific people that he will choose to be gracious to and show mercy to. For example, the, the people of Israel are not a group of people into which people by their choice enter into, with the arguable exception of the very rare occasional um, convert to Israel, right? So my question for you then, before we move on to the next part of Romans 9 is, if I'm right about that, if in, in its original context, God is talking about showing mercy to uh, a specific people and not to a group of people into which people may or may not, you know, choose to enter, then how wouldn't that seem to lend support to Robertson, my reading of Paul of, of Paul's words in Romans nine, where he cites that verse? I think I 
I think I understand your point, and in some sense, maybe I'm looking at it slightly more abstracting the principle of God's sovereignty and being able to choose whoever he wants out of the specifics of, you know, I'm going to show mercy to um, Bob and Tim and Sue the, and not Sarah and, and Jane and, and Mike, right? So I, th I think that's probably accurate. Um, and that that Paul is is probably just drawing that principle out rather than the, than those specifics, um, but I, I think the, more more broadly, right? This is in the golden calf incident, obviously, and the um, the law was broken, right? The 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 Sinaitic covenant was broken, and more law keeping isn't going to fix the problem. What's now is needed is mercy, and I think that that's a, that's the centrality of of Paul's point. Hopefully, we can agree on, at least on that much. Okay. All right. Well, let me, it's, it's the very next verse after, um, uh, you know, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, um, that he, uh, yeah, that he then in verse 17, sorry, no, it's in the very next verse after it's hit Paul saying it doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That was verse 16. It's in the very next verse that, um, Paul then cites, uh, God's words to Pharaoh, uh, in, um, Exodus 9:16. For this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Now, it seems, I think, to Calvinist readers like me, um, that that in in its original context and as Paul is using it here, um, the idea is that uh, everything in Pharaoh's life um, was orchestrated super, you know, uh, 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 sovereignly to use a little bit of a loaded term by God to get Pharaoh to the point and then to, uh, where he is in authority over Egypt and he is enslaving the Jewish people. Uh, and then when God brings Moses in, in, in its original context, it seems as if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart so that, um, he, God can demonstrate his power, um, lest, uh, uh, Pharaoh free the Israelites before God has had his chance to demonstrate his power. In other words, it seems to me as if Paul is citing Pharaoh to show that um, it's all ultimately foreordained by God and, and, and purposeful. It has it has a purpose in, in the case of Pharaoh to demonstrate God's power, um, which it seems to me at least would lend support to the notion that it is um, doesn't depend at all, not even salvation itself, uh, depend on an act of human will or exertion. Um, but that's how I see it. And I want to get how Robert sees it. But before I turn back to Robert, Dan, what do you have? What do you think is Paul is doing by introducing Pharaoh? How does it fit into your larger interpretation of the passage? So Pharaoh is the opposite side of mercy, right? He's the not mercy uh, sort. And um, now I, I would limit it probably more down to the um, the hardening, but although the, the raised up, um, Robert had some very interesting comments and maybe he could expand on them. I had previously taken raised up in the sense of, uh, it's either one of two ways allowed to live or survive through the plagues that long sort of, or the other sense that it could be is may, maybe made king and put in this position of, of high authority so he's very visible um, so that the plan of salvation can be got out through him. But the, um, but, um, I, I I agree with Leighton Flowers' view, Robert. I know you had a discussion with him on um, the purpose, ultimate purpose behind the hardening is some sort of mercy. But I, where I don't like is his emphasis. I mean, he makes mercy, hardening sound so good. It's like, can I be hardened, you know, on Friday? Because you know, it, it's the nicest thing you can do, right? No, no. Uh, being hardened is is really rough, 
It it's definitely shows a sovereign hand of God. You don't want to be in a position where you're being hardened. It's, um, if the hardening doesn't reverse, you're going to end up in hell. Um, so, um, so, so, so it's, it's definitely a, a case of God not showing mercy. But um, where I think I, I put a lot of weight on Exodus 3.19, um, so Exodus 3.19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And specifically when uh, Moses initially goes to Pharaoh, he tell, tells him, you know, uh, he reveals who God is and then he tells him, um, you know, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. He says he doesn't know who God is, and then he, he's cruel to the uh, Israelites, saying, make bricks without straw. And all of that happens before the hardening aspect, um, and it's part of the reason why he ends up hardened, but God knew that this would be the case. Okay, Robert, let me turn it over to you. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so uh, when, when we look at the, the verb that Paul uses, and I, I made the point when, when Chris and I were walking through the Greek text that, that Paul uh, differs from the uh, Septuagint, and from, which, which is a fairly literal rendering of the Hebrew, um, and uh, uh, uses the uh, verb uh, exegero, which um, it, it can mean a number of different things. Um, uh, BDAG, the, the standard Greek lexicon for uh, New Testament Greek, um, has Romans 9.17 listed as uh, bring, cause to appear or bring into being. And it, it gives a number of references, uh, but uh, it also lists that Romans 9.17 could be something like elevate, like as you know, would be similar to what Dan is saying as far as uh, uh, appointing him as king or, or uh, putting him in a position of prominence. Uh, obviously, I, I made the... Uh, I would make the argument that it, it means cause to appear, uh, especially when we're comparing it to um, uh, the the other versions of of the the passage that Paul is quoting from here. Paul is is building on those, and and he's providing his interpretation of of the meaning of Pharaoh's story here as an analogy for what's going on with uh, the people of Israel. And when we we look back at that story, it, it's really fascinating. Um, I've got uh, if we want to get into to some of the Hebrew, I've got a number of. Um, uh, uh, things on a chart here that they, they kind of show out that the different grammatical forms and what's going on there. But but Dan is right. If you look at 319, uh, Yahweh says that I know Pharaoh will not let you go, right? So let, let's just think about this on a practical level. Pharaoh is the most powerful figure on the planet. He is uh, a son of God. He has this slave people uh, who who do his bidding for for pennies, if that. Just he just has to keep them going, and and he's getting his uh, pyramids built. Is as they built the uh, city of Ramesses in in the uh, Book of Exodus, and so. Um, a prophet of a slave people comes to him and says, hey, you need to let us go in the desert to, to worship our God. Pharaoh's like, well, I'm your God, actually. Um, no, thank you. I'll keep my free labor force. Of course, Yahweh knows that, that Pharaoh is going to uh, you know, need to be compelled before he wants to let them go. Um, but then you go on to chapter 4, and Yahweh says in, in verse, verses 21 and following um, that uh, – I'm not going to let Pharaoh let you go until I'm ready to have Pharaoh let you go, right? So obviously Pharaoh 
Pharaoh has a hardened heart. Pharaoh would harden his heart. There are a couple um, uh, instances in the Exodus narrative where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Of course he would harden his heart. There's no question about that. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Um, but then as the plagues increase, it get worse, and Pharaoh gets to a point where uh, even the most powerful man in the world would yield, realizing that there's something beyond his power at work here. God says, no, I'm not going to let Pharaoh let you go until I'm done. Um, and, and this is a really interesting text. He says um, in, in 423, I told you, uh, let my son go and worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I'm about to kill your firstborn son. Um, this is what God is saying is, is I'm not going to let Pharaoh go. Uh, back up to verse 22. I'm not going to let Pharaoh let you go, Israel, my firstborn, until I've killed his firstborn son. And, and you, you think about that, and, and that is some, some really harsh, strong stuff, but it's, it's right there in the text. So um, that is an analogy for Paul for what's going on in the case of Israel. Uh, some uh, Israelites are playing the role of Pharaoh, and, and they also will end up destroyed because of God's intention to make his name um, and, and, and purpose uh, stand so that he could uh, proclaim it in all the earth. And Paul is, is citing, uh, I believe it's Exodus 4, uh, 6, or 9.16 uh, there uh, in, in verse 7, 17. Um, and um, interestingly, uh, a text from Qumran, uh, 1QH, uh, column seven, which is is the Thanksgiving hymns, uh, it uses a very very similar uh, phrase there, a very similar language to, to what Paul is using there. Probably also uh, building on the Exodus account, uh, and which Paul also goes on to use again in the um, uh, Potter Clay analogy. It, it's about God uh, showing His power, making His name uh, proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, in it, it uses it in a context about explicit, you know, double predestination, like membership into the covenant or predestined not to be in the covenant and then ultimately to be uh, destroyed. So uh, even though Pharaoh's will obviously was um, uh, at work, he did not want to obey Yahweh at first. It wasn't advantageous and would have become advantageous. Yahweh determined that Pharaoh's will isn't what's important. His will is what's important. He was going to harden his heart to uh, see to it that, that he um, finished what he intended to do from the get-go. And that's exactly what we see played out. And that makes good sense in Paul's context. Before I turn back to you, Dan, I, I just want to find out if I can pull up that that portion of the Dead Sea Scrolls. What, what was the citation? Again? Okay, yeah, actually, you know what? I might, hold on a second. We didn't uh, prepare to share screens, but I m might have the reference... Um, ready to go here. Uh, give me one moment. No I think you said it was one QH or one QS. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 one QH uh, and it's column seven. Okay, yeah. So um, do you want? I I have it here. If you want, uh, if you we. Oh yeah, I need to share my screen. Right. Well, is that going to be simple enough? Let's see here. Um, I think I think we can make that work. Okay, here. Let me go ahead do and share that. your screen, and we'll see if it. All right, just a second here. Okay, share screen, and where's the one I want to share? Okay, and start sharing. I'll let you know when. Yeah, it should. Are you seeing it now? Yeah. Um... Okay, so look um, right here. So here, I'm going to highlight. Let's see. Well, let me highlight this stuff. Okay. So, but the wicked you created for the time of your wrath from the womb. Hello, back to Jacob and Esau. Um, uh, so that 
they walk in the way which is not profitable. And and here it goes. It says, you have prepared them in order to execute great judgments among them before all your creatures, that they might be a sign eternal, uh, so that all might know your glory and great power, etc. Right. So that's that's that that same language. And then it gets in. I, I pulled this up to to reference when we talk about the Potter clay analogy because it says, you know, how is dust able to determine its step, and and that Yahweh is the one who forms the spirit and its activity as He has determined. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Here, back up. This is uh, uh one QH uh, seven, seven twenty five to thirty five. And be careful when you're looking at one QH. That's the um the Thanksgiving hymns scroll. Different translations are looking at different uh, ways the text was edited. There's actually an an official like scholarly edition, but it's like. 500 bucks for for the, for the volume and so the different english translations you'll the there aren't verses there are columns and lines um and uh it will always be in column seven but the lines will vary so you just need to uh make sure that you read it in context it may be difficult to find the references there so oh yes 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 All right, am I so back? You are, and and Dan, I want to give you uh, the final word on on this portion before we move on to the next one, um, and hopefully, I'm able to find one QH just for my own interest later on. Go ahead. Final thoughts on this one. So, I guess uh, the, the the main reference, obviously, that Paul uses is in nine is sixteen, but I just wanted to back up to verse fifteen because I think it's going to be relevant later. Um, so, in nine fifteen, uh, God says. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Right. So the essential picture that I take from this is that God could have destroyed Egypt and Pharaoh right away. Right. And that's because they were sinful and wicked and they killed the Hebrew children, all this stuff. Right. Um, God could have just judge them and destroy them but he doesn't he he waits he's patient with them and then the other aspect of the pharaoh narrative that i'd like to draw out is the fact that hardening is not this wall-to-wall -wall thing it's on it's off it's on it's off and pharaoh himself goes back and forth back and forth yes you can go no you can't go you can go but you can't take your children no you can't go and even at one point it's said that uh, pharaoh repents but then he uh, go, go, changes his mind again, right? And um, so Pharaoh basically, it, I, I would not take the hardening as um, the, theistic determinism, not causal determinism, Chris, theistic determinism. Well, neither um, do Robert and I, though, or at least I don't. I don't think the hardening is a reference to reprobation. Oh, got it. Yeah, not in this I, I, I agree with you, but no. But what I'm saying is, I don't think the whole the passage as a whole is a good case for theistic determinism because it's not wall to wall. So, um, so in in any case, where where Paul is focused is um, God's overall plan with respect to to, uh, to Pharaoh, and most specifically in the hardening. And I think I think I think what's interesting in in Paul's usage is that the snippet that he quotes. Uh, for this purpose, I've raised you up so that it might show my power in you, right? That's in verse 17. But look how he sums it up in 18. Uh, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But in that little snippet, the word hardening isn't there, 
right? But Paul has it in view. So Paul is looking at a broader picture of what's going on with Pharaoh in general, and specifically the fact that it's it, God's choosing mercy or hardening. Mercy presupposes sin, breaking the Sinaitic covenant, breaking the law. Well, then so does hardening, and that's why I take the hardening here to be judicial. I know you said you'd give him the last word, and I really want to push back on a couple things. Could... All right, it's just eating into the time we'll have for the Potter <laughs> okay, analogy. Okay, I'll try to be real fast. First, you, you said that God is being patient with Pharaoh, but God said in, in 4, uh, 21 and following, I'm not going to let Pharaoh let them go until I've killed his firstborn son. So is God being patient with Pharaoh, like just wanting Pharaoh to like really repent and then God wouldn't destroy him? God said from the get-go that he's going to carry through these entire plagues and, and kill Pharaoh's uh, firstborn son. I don't think this is a case of God being patient with Pharaoh. I think this is a case of God wanting to use Pharaoh to proclaim his name in the world. Why is Pharaoh the pawn? Because he's the most powerful figure on the planet at the time. If Yahweh uh, uh, manipulates him and uses him to show that he's greater and more powerful than him, it, it, it accomplishes that. And then you say that Pharaoh was going back and forth, and there are those couple texts in there that one even says he repented one says that he determined to let them go but then he like immediately reneges on it right so the idea is that pharaoh is trying to save his own skin this isn't like genuine sincere repentance that his heart isn't hardened this is pharaoh uh, doing what sinful people do and and trying to manipulate yahweh and 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 uh uh you know, get some relief, um, and then he reneges on it. Shows his his true colors like almost immediately. So I I, I just think the the whole reading of it, and uh, you know, you you interacted in uh, um, with with Beale's article in your uh, response to us. I'd really challenge you to. Uh, I don't know what your background is with Hebrew grammar, uh, but if 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 uh, you're able to to really uh dig into what he says there about what's going on grammatically and i've i've got a um i've got something i could share with you about that as well uh but i i just don't think that that account of the narrative uh big picture i agree paul's looking at the big picture i just don't think that 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 really does justice even to the big picture and i, and I just want to add uh, a couple of observations firstly um it seems to me that Although, so sometimes, and I'm not saying this is the case with you, Dan, but sometimes non-Calvinists will say, well, look, sometimes Pharaoh is said to have hardened his own heart. So, um, you know, clearly it, uh, there, there, some of those choices are, are Pharaoh's or whatever. But, but the thing is, is the very first time that it says anything about Pharaoh's heart becoming hard, it's immediately after God has first said, I will harden his heart. So um, in 7.3, Exodus 7.3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And, I, and though I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to to you and then it's 10 verses later that it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So it seems to me as if the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is predominantly the act of God even before Pharaoh does any hardening of his heart on his own. And then the other thing I wanted to observe is just that um, the, the the reading that Robert and I have does not at all uh, entail mercy and hardening uh, not being f dependent first uh, logically on sin. Yeah. Um, if, if, if God uh, for ordains uh, to if he chooses in eternity past to whom he's going to show mercy because they are also going to be sinners um, that doesn't mean that the mercying isn't nevertheless 
uh, a, a, a sovereign in the sense that Robert and I mean sovereign yeah. act of God. It doesn't seem to. So I guess I just don't see the point of th this repeated emphasis that hey, mercying and hardening pre presuppose a sin. Yeah, I agree. So what? Yeah. So I, me... I think what I think what Dan is getting at is probably some some Calvinists who will use this text, you know, and and I think broaden Romans nine beyond Paul's immediate concern because, um, and look at this as a, a pre-creation, you know, forming of certain vessels, you know, that like like that sort of thing. And and I do think it it's, it says a lot that's relevant about predestination, and we we can make some inferences. But immediately he's talking about mercy versus hardening of sinful Israel, right? So it's it. Uh, I don't have a problem with you know talking about judicial hardening or 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 the fact that sin is presupposed, but I think Dan is probably used to talking about what I would say are some unnuanced Calvinist appeals to this text. So um, we we agree on that point, Dan. Uh, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And so uh, there was a lot to respond to, but but I'll I'll let you guys have the last word. I'll just say that I'm, I appreciate that you're, you agree on the judicial hardening aspect. Uh, I think that is going to be important when we look at verse uh, verse 19. Okay. Well, let's get to verse 19 then, because this is where, of course, we get to the hypothetical objector. And as um, uh, Calvinists, one in particular that I have in mind, of whom I'm a big fan, um, will very often make the point that, look, if if um, if a non-Calvinist objects to a Calvinist reading of the text with the very objection that Paul raises in verse 19, that's an indication that the um, non-Calvinist critic um, is is uh, is not understanding Paul properly, right? So so the way it'll often go, or at least the way it's alleged to often go by Calvinists like me, is we'll offer what we take to be a appropriate reading of this text and the Bible as a whole, Calvinistic uh, predestination, and the objector will say, well, but how is that fair, right? How 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 can God hold anybody accountable if He is ultimately the one who is foreordained what they will do, including whether they what they how they will sin and whether they repent. Um, but that is the very objection, it seems to us Calvinists, that Paul is raising on the part of the hypothetical, hypothetical objector here in verse 19, which would seem to us to suggest that, yeah, the very reading that we just offered is the one that Paul is affirming, which is why it prompted the, the, the objection, the, you know, the objection that it did. Um, so if that's not the case, if, if, uh, if the hypothetical objector here doesn't lend support to um, Roberts and my reading, why not? What, what do you think the hypothetical hypothetical objection um, lend support to? So if I were Pharaoh and I got a copy of Exodus and I, I started reading it, you know, let's say after the eighth plague or something like that, and I started reading it and I, I, was, I was like, you mean God is hardening my heart? Yeah, I'm going to complain, right? And, and the, that complaint is probably coming from the fact that Pharaoh was a pretty wicked dude to begin with. Um, so even the, the concept of judicial hardening would raise this sort of question. Um, the way I'd explain it is, you know, let's say um, the son is responsible to uh, uh, plow a field or something like that, but they get drunk and they fall into a ditch. And so in a drunken stupor in a ditch that they can't get out of while they're drunk, they can't plow the field. Um, does that mean that the, the father has to um, remove that responsibility for him to plow the field? No, it's still the son's fault, even though they can't do it. And that's the that's the concept of judicial hardening. Um, so does that uh, does that answer your question? I, I don't know, Robert. I, I'm not sure I'm following 100%. But Robert, if you want to respond, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, th there's there's man, there's just so much in, in this section. So I, I guess I'd like to ask Dan. So does the hardening uh, preclude? 
And, and this is something that um, I, I intend to discuss with Leighton Flowers again in the future on his show. We, we talked about uh, coming on to talk about what hardening means. He seems to think that the hardening in my, I, I can't quite understand what the purpose of the hardening is in his point of view, because he almost seems to think that, yeah, even though you're hardened, you could still just um, repent and believe at any time and, and the hardening will go away. And, and so I, I want to ask, and if I'm misrepresenting his view, frankly, I don't know that I fully understand it. So I, I'm not trying to misrepresent his view uh, for any of his fans who might watch the show or if he, or if he does. Um, but Dan, so do you think that the, the hardening prevents faith as a possibility until the hardening is removed by God? Uh, absolutely. I'm okay. I, I absolutely in a, in a sense of it's impossible to believe while you're hardened. Okay. I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. So let me, let me put it this way. So it says, why does he yet find fault for who has resisted as well? So there's something yeah. irresistible here. Right? Yes. So, and it has to do with the hardening. Obviously it has something, it has something to do with hardening. So if God has chosen to harden an individual, they absolutely will be hardened. Right? Okay. That now, what is the hardening? How does it mechanically happen? That's not necessarily in Paul's view here, mm -hmm. nor is it the case that uh, he's, he, he's, Paul himself doesn't directly answer your specific question. Um, we, we, yeah. we have to look at some other texts, and frankly, we might not have the exact answer on, oh. on that. Okay, so but, well, hold on, Robert. Let me yeah, let me okay. interject yeah. here for a moment because um, this is, I think, a really critical question. Um, arguably, as as and you are indeed arguing this, Dan. It seems to me um, the uh, this objection uh, uh, had it been raised by Pharaoh um, would be. Uh, your, your reading would then be plausible. In other words, um, you, God, ha hardened me so that I would refuse to do what you wanted me to do. How can you find fault with that if you're the one who hardened me to do it? Uh, I could buy that. But the problem is that, that th this portion of the text here is in service to a larger or to a different question, not um, why did P Pharaoh refuse to let uh, Moses' people go, but rather, why don't my, and I'm speaking here as Paul, why don't my contemporary Jewish brothers believe? Yeah. So, so it, it sounds, so it seems to me as if the hardening here is not merely have to do it doesn't merely have to do with pharaoh and, and the people of israel in egypt it has to do with the present the present jews in paul's day that were not believers were not believers because god hardened them but that would seem to contradict what you said a moment ago which is that hardening doesn't preclude faith so that's why this seems to me to be yeah. a relevant thing here how, if how are the how were paul's contemporary jews hardened in such a way that makes sense in the context of Romans 9, Dan, if hardening doesn't preclude the very faith they don't have. So you're right. So, be, well, I think you're right anyways, that, that uh, the way I would describe it is Paul is warming his, he's, he's given body shots to, 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 for the knockout punch to Israel, right? And so he's, he's laying down the principle of this hardening for that purpose to set him up with, with what he's going to say later, hint at later in nine and then make explicit in 11. And in some sense, uh, that's part of Paul's strategy, right? Let's say, for example, um, he uses kind of these narrative arcs. So the objection in 19, he doesn't totally address immediately in verses 20 through 23. He starts to address it, but he doesn't immediately address it. He uh, lays the foundation but then he builds a story, and the real answers come in 
uh, later at the end of chapter nine, right? The, the, because they're seeking righteousness, um, they're seeking the law through uh, right, uh, through the righteousness. Um, I'm sorry, they're seeking righteousness, righteousness through, through, the law. Yeah. through the law. And then in chapter ten, you know that God God has His hands extended. In chapter eleven, they're cut off because of unbelief. And those are kind of a, a little more directly answering. Um, Verse 19 versus the potter clay analogy. Uh, I'll, I'll grant that, but, but that's part of Paul's strategy. I think he does something similar um, with the licenses of sin objection in chapter 6. He in, initially addresses it, but I wouldn't say that chapter 8 in Romans isn't also dealing with the license of sin objection. If if the license of sin objection had come up and, and Paul started out with the Romans 8.13, you know, um, uh, if you live after the flesh, you'll die. He could have immediately squashed the license of sin objection at the beginning of six, but that's not what he does. He wants to get his doctrine out, and he uses this as an occasion to do that. So I think it's more of a narrative arc approach. Okay, but but the the thing the question I'm still I still have open in my mind is: Do you think that the uh, that Paul's fellow Jews that were not believing about whom he speaks at the beginning of Romans nine, do you think they were hardened? Yes. Okay. What was the result of their hardening? What was the what was the um, purpose of their hardening? What did the, their hardening guarantee? So, oh, okay. So the, the big <laughs> the, the, the bigger picture strategy is obviously getting the gospel out to the Jews, just like with Pharaoh. You know, God's name was declared throughout all the earth. So that's the overall strategy. I think you can see that in the eleven of the yeah. lump in in, in eleven. Um, but let's back up and just deal with the more immediate. What is the result? You're you're absolutely right, Chris. That it kind of locked the Jews into their position of unbelief. Um, now, whether that was absolute or just made it very, very difficult, I don't think Paul is addressing. But the uh, but the fact that it, it moved him in the direction of unbelief and, and ultimately pushed him to the destruction that happened at, at the temple in 70 AD, no question that that's, that's the case. And God um, was judging the Jews, but um, uh, preserving a remnant. Was it possible? I will turn to you, Robert, in a second. But yeah. is it possible? Was it possible, Dan, for Pharaoh? Was it possible, just very, very hard, for Pharaoh to um, let his, let Israel's people go, even when God had hardened him? I I don't know the answer to that, and I don't think that's specifically addressed in in the Exodus account. Um, so I'm sorry to sorry to punt, but I'm just not sure. Yeah. Okay, well here I'll just say this then: it seems to me really evident, both in Exodus and here in Romans nine, that the hardening of Pharaoh guaranteed didn't just make it very very likely that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, let Moses' people go, and therefore, in the service of Paul's argument, the hardening of Paul's contemporary Jews likely Likewise, produced an um, inevitable result, it seems to me. And in its context, it seems to me as if the inevitable result is they're not having faith. Um, that seems to be the whole point, to explain why, not why Paul's fellow Jews were persecuting Christians, which would which would be consistent with what you're saying, I think, uh, but rather why they don't believe. So, Chris, let me ask you a question. I know you're the host. No, no please, go ahead. Why, why was Pharaoh so wishy-washy? Why did he go uh, back and forth? I, I that because that was part of God's very plan. Because um, the the going back and forth prolonged the um, uh, the uh, what's the word in a, in a story when you the suspense right? It prolonged the suspense. Um, it it it, uh, it gave. Um, 
uh, it, it gave more and more and more opportunities for God to display his power. It made the people of Israel um, feel more and more and more and more hopeless until they realized that they had to fully trust in the power of God and not on um, man of any sort. So there's a whole host of purposes, but I don't see any reason for thinking that... that... See, it sounds to me as if you're saying that God's hardening Pharaoh's heart was kind of like... Um, him pushing down on on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is pushing back up, and sometimes he's having success pushing it up, and then other times he's he's being pressed under his weight. But that seems to be wholly out of context. It, it seems to me really clear that the hardening guarantees the purposes that God had in that hardening. Yeah, and 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 I would say the Pharaoh's yeah, wishy-washiness is is not that the hardening is ineffective. Right. Um, his his wishy-washiness is his attempt to get a little uh, fire insurance to look, you know, to bring his head up for some air and um, okay. All right. If I, if I say this, maybe Moses will talk his God down a little bit and he'll, he'll uh, lighten up, you know, just a little bit and I can, I can get out from under this, you know, like, it's not like sincere repentance. We all know, we all know people who, who say the sinner's prayer because they want hellfire insurance, right? Eternal hellfire insurance, Chris. Um, but, um, uh, but, and I was thinking that Dan, I don't know what Dan's view is on that, but maybe he and I could come and team up on you on that sometime. But uh, <laughs> I'll take but as many of you on as you need. I know, I know you would. And side, then I thought anyway. like, you know, Chris would be very ready for that. So I don't, I don't know. So, um, uh, anyways, but the, um, the, the, the point is that Pharaoh isn't like sincere, like, oh, I just, I really want to do what God wants me to do. You know, like, no, no, he, he wants to save his skin. He wants to keep his power. So, uh, you know, what the, the nature of the hardening is, is, is not that the hardening is going away or, or is not being effective. Pharaoh is trying to save his skin. Pharaoh is trying not to get killed by God and also to hold on to the, the power that he has and not let God's name be shown to be more powerful than his name, you know? So I, I yeah, yeah, go so, ahead. So uh, I, I guess I would say that whether the wishing of washiness was the result of the, the hardening not being absolute or the hardening uh, relenting at some point or other, you know, in and out intermittent hardening, one way or the other, there's there's some back and forth there, and I think that's important. Not just Chris, just to, just to make sure, just for the audience, I I don't think that God was pushing down on Pharaoh in the sense of he was making Pharaoh evil. Um, that, that it's not like Pharaoh was a good person and then God is making him evil. I, the way I would say it is the other way. I'm, I'm an Arminian. So in terms of provenient grace, God is removing his provenient grace to expose the evil that was already there. Uh, uh, um, I just want to clarify that so I, I'm well, not sure. mis misunderstood. But just to be clear myself, my my point of the pushing up and down picture was not had nothing to do with whether God was making him evil. It was to illustrate that um, your conception of heart Hardening seems like a, a duel of strength, as it were. I'm not being literal here, but between God and uh, and, and Pharaoh, such that God is exerting a certain amount of, of of weight on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is resisting that with varying degrees of success. And what I'm suggesting is that that doesn't seem to fit Romans or Exodus. It seems that the hardening is a matter of uh, sovereignty. It's it's God's it's God's guarantee that Pharaoh will do what God intends for Pharaoh to do. Okay, so fair enough. Uh, I'd say whatever whatever the reason Pharaoh was wishy washy. Okay, but we also Robert and I and, and yeah. plenty of other Calvinists also believe that one day the Jewish people are going to embrace their Messiah. So the idea that God can lift his hardening is not a challenge to our reading either. Oh no, no, and I wouldn't 
that's, okay. uh, that's not right. an argu argument. That's gotcha. Uh, we could, can. Go oh, ahead. Could, well, could I just spell out, you know, positive? I, we've been putting it to Dan here for a minute. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to spell out positively what I think is going on beginning in, in verse 19. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. So, um, I, I think this is one of the places where we can we can see the problems with the, the kind of approach that, that Dan and, and, and other Arminian readers interpret. Because if, if the point is that they are hardened because they didn't believe when they freely could have, the objection in verse 19 doesn't make any sense. Um, nor does Paul's response, because then the the answer to the objection yeah. would be would be what? Well, they're hello. Um, he can find fault not because they're not resisting his will, but because uh, they have chosen not to believe. They have not um, uh, followed the program, as as Paul says. So of course, they're guilty. But but that's precisely the opposite of what Paul says. The objector realizes that, that what Paul says undermines uh, the possibility for uh, these people whose unbelief Paul is, is giving account for uh, could have done otherwise, right? So it, it's impossible that they could have. And, and, and then he rebukes the question and appeals to God's right introducing this potter clay analogy you have no right to answer back to god you can't you can't bring god into your courtroom you can't call him to account um and and this is where he he brings up the potter clay imagery he's citing from uh isaiah 29 and and 45 here uh to describe the the fact that it's it's foolish and 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 uh just uh you know flat uh silly for the the creature to to look at the creator and question his wisdom and right and sovereignty and and that's the language he uses here the potter has the right the authority to do what he wants with his clay and he forms uh one vessel for honorable use another for dishonorable use um uh, they're called vessels of wrath which which i um take to be a um, uh, genitive of destination, uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Uh, Chris, this is this is where I'll, I'll draw you into. Is that uh, we know that that language of destruction is about eschatological judgment, right? Um, regardless of, of how we would fill that in differently, that's that's about eschatological judgment. You can see that uh, throughout Paul's letters, and likewise, so is uh, mercy and glory right those those ends um and 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 so i i think it's unavoidable here and and i i do want to get into um we could get into some more points about about grammar and uh, also into the old testament and jewish background a little bit more but but that's that's the point and just following paul's rhetoric even if we disagree about some of the the, the material in the background following paul's rhetoric uh the objection i don't think it makes sense on the kind of reading that 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 Dan would offer with all love and respect to him and the many Arminian scholars who I, I respect and, and, and learn from. Um, uh, but uh, a reading like ours has, has a lot more to commend it and the analogy bears it out. This is a, a potter doing what he wants with his clay. Yeah, but I want to focus on the potter clay analogy in a minute, but before we do, I want to make sure that something gets um, addressed by you, Dan. I'd like to see how you answer this. Um, Robert made a point that I'd never considered before, honestly, which is um, if the hardening um, that prompts the uh, the objection, who can resist God's will, if that hardening was itself a response to a, a libertarian free decision on the part of the Jews that Paul has in mind, the, the libertarian free will to reject Christ, that is, then this objection doesn't even make sense. Why does he still find fault? 
because because the the reason they're hardened in the first place is because of what they did right so there would be an obvious answer the objection wouldn't even make sense um or so it seems to me um which i think is a really powerful point that robert makes before we get into the weeds of the potter clay analogy and that is where we're about to move but before we do that dan how would you respond to that why why couldn't Paul just answer this hypothetical objection, which nobody would raise, it seems to me anyway, if why, why couldn't he just answer it? He finds fault because you didn't believe and your, your hardening that has resulted in everything following your disbelief was the result of the dis, your disbelief. And so it's what you deserve. What are so, your thoughts? So I, I think I mentioned that I view this as kind of a narrative arc approach. So he does say that, you know, they're cut off because of unbelief, but he does, doesn't say it just quite yet. And that's because he has a more pressing concern to deal with, which is the objection is pushing back on God's sovereignty, and he has to dive directly into God's sovereignty. Um, that's a very short uh, answer because I'm eager to get into the text itself, but uh, um, but that's a, in a, in a nutshell. Okay. Well, Robert, um, you spent a few minutes there sort of introducing the Potter Clay analogy. Um, we had talked in advance about how I was going to give each of you a few minutes to lay out your positive... Sorry. Mute your mute your phone, your cell phones. Yeah, let me make sure mine's muted. <laughs> uh, but... Um, uh, we, we said in advance I would give each of you a few minutes at this stage to lay out sort of a positive what your reading is of the Potter Clay analogy and, and why you think it is what it is. Um, did you have more to say on that, Robert? Or um, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, 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 if I could, real quickly. So uh, there, there are a couple things in in Paul's background uh, going on here. So uh, one, we have a Day of the Lord motif, and you can see that specifically when he says that these are vessels of of wrath and vessels of mercy prepared either for destruction or for glory. Uh, compare that with um, Romans chapter 2 and some other uh, uh, eschatological language that, that Paul deals with in the Old Testament background. There's a book called uh, The Righteous and Merciful Judge um, that uh, deals with Paul's um, uh, use of this Day of the Lord motif, and it has a really helpful treatment of, of Romans 9 on that that I'd commend. I forget the author's names. It's uh, two authors, uh, but I, I could give that to you later. Um, and, and then Paul, uh, in, in order, uh, you know, when, when he when he responds to the objector uh, in order to introduce this in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, this is the introduction of the, the Potter Clay analogy. Why have you made me like this? Uh, Paul quotes um, uh, really what, what a lot of most scholars think is sort of like an amalgamation of um, Isaiah 29, 16 and 45, 9. And when you read those texts in their context, I think that they're um, uh, uh, about what what God is doing through the nation Israel, you know, for his, the revelation of his sovereignty uh, into the world, but it includes they're being blinded and they're, they're being judged ultimately in part to, to um, be realized in, in an eschatological judgment. Uh, and through all that, God is, God is uh, taking uh, the, uh, creating the kingdom and, and taking it into the world. That's different from some of the other um, uh, language that we get with the imagery of, of, potter and clay or or more 
um, or more narrowly about vessels and places like Jeremiah 18 and uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. I think those texts get appealed to without very good appreciation for their context. So if Dan goes there, you know, we can we can follow up on that. And uh, also when we, we, we see that this was a, an important motif in, in the Second Temple Jewish literature, uh, and Paul is uh, can be compared and contrasted with those, and, and that becomes very, very instructive. So in the so uh, Wisdom of Solomon, um, it's used to describe idolatry, which is clearly not what Paul's talking about here. It's, it's not God as the potter, it's idolaters as, as potters and clay as what they make their idols out of. But in texts like Sirach 33, which, I, which I've published on, um, it's talking about what God does at creation. And so that, that gives a, a, a broader application to it than just Israel. And it says that, that uh, all human beings are like clay in the hands of God the potter. Uh, he, he, he gives them whatever they decide uh, uh, multiple scholars I could cite say this means that he determines their destiny and it's part of a, a structure and creation there's this uh, what's called the doctrine of opposites where he creates good and evil life and death sinner and godly they're all the works of his hand as creator and we see this imagery we already looked at uh, some material from the the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I would point to additional material which which talks about God forming human spirits and, and destinies and, and bringing them into the faith. And uh, it's all according to his good pleasure. Uh, we, get, we get language like according to his purpose, according to the purpose of election. We get the language of according to his good pleasure in uh, Ephesians as well. Uh, Paul is actually taking up these phrases that are distinctive in these predestinarian uh, Second Temple texts. I'm not saying he's literarily dependent upon them, but he's he's working in their theological orbit um, uh, in, in a lot of fascinating ways. And I've got some texts here that if, if we want, I can uh, put up some primary texts uh, after, after Dan um, offers a response. But um, a lot of scholars, and, and what's interesting is it's not Calvinist scholars who are saying this, uh, but scholars like uh, Megan Broshi, uh, who is a, a Jewish scholar who, who died this year, um, uh, an archaeologist, big name in, in the uh, work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He says that there's no question that the that, uh, Essene ideology influenced Paul's uh, predestinarian and election language. Uh, we don't know how that happened. We can't put that together. Uh, but this sort of uh, Jewish predestinarian uh, thinking is is just so very, very clear. David Fluser uh, was another Jewish scholar who, had, who I'd point to who made this uh uh, very uh, forcefully in, in his publications. He died a while ago. So anyways, I, I hope that was coherent. <laughs> okay. All right, Dan, you take a few minutes to likewise spell out um, how you read the Potter Clay analogy and why you think it should be read that way. Um, and then I'll try to get us going into a more back and forth discussion. Sure. So let's see. So I'll start in Verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will, the th will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And um, Robert is absolutely correct that he's referring to Isaiah 29. There, um, basically what was happening, I guess, uh, there was uh, the... Uh, the Assyrians were going to invade, and they're hiding... The, some of the Jews are hiding the plans to ally with Egypt from God, and that's that's crazy and they shouldn't be doing that and so that's that's where the uh, potter clay analogy is and comes in in isaiah 29 and uh robert is absolutely right that there's blindness but it also says later i think in um in isaiah 29 that the blindness will reverse and um 
as it will here in, in Romans uh, 11, we will see that the, the hardening will reverse. If Israel's blindness will reverse, just like it does in 29. Okay, so then, um, then verse 20, uh, does, it seems like Paul is, is borrowing language from wisdom. I'm not 100% certain on that, but I'm fairly certain because there's so much verbal overlap. But he says... Uh, He's going to basically lay out the analogy, and then 20 and 23 are, uh, 22 and 23 are going to um, apply the analogy. So, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And that, so, that's the analogy. That's this is actually talking about a potter, but he's um, saying God is like this potter. And then, um, what if God, desiring to show His wrath? and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so there's there's vessels of wrath right and then god prepares those vessels of wrath for destruction and then he has patience and endures them with much patience um and he does this why in verse 23 in order to make known the riches of his glory to the vessels of mercy which he before Beforehand, uh, prepared beforehand for glory. Um, so the uh, core concepts that I'd like to bring out here is that they're, they're vessels of wrath first and then they're prepared for destruction. Um, so the wrath is wrath at sin and it does in the future will be you know eschatological wrath but in, in the in the interim it's wrath that god is holding back his judgment on but he's mad at them and he's mad at them because of sin and so it's very much like the uh, mercy language that we saw in, in um, about moses and also in verse 18 where i put a pretty strong emphasis on the fact that they were sinners and that that's the reason why god has wrath on them he has he's mad at them because of sin or he has mercy on them even though they're sinners right they're vessels of mercy which is mercy on their sins he's has wrath because he has wrath because of sin and so i take this as judicial but um i also take it as something that is is reversible and can change you can see that in um the reference to hosea um so it goes on even though he's called not from the jews but also from the gentiles indeed as he says to hosea um those who are not my people will call my people and those who are not beloved i will call beloved right that they they switch categories from not beloved not beloved to loved right so they switch categories in the in the potter clay words that would be they switch from vessels that were um um, vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy um, and we can also see that in in uh, Romans chapter 11 but we, we don't have to go there so um, for me obviously what is going to be key that uh, I'd like to, to to drill into is this whole concept of of patience we talked a little bit about it with respect to Pharaoh but um, here Paul says that God is patient and holding back, or long, patient or long-suffering, even though he wants to show his wrath, um, he's patient with these vessels of, uh, of wrath that he's prepared for destruction. Well, what's the point of this patience? Um, and so here I'm going I'm to switch up and go to um, an odd place. You wouldn't expect me to go here, but to Second Peter, or maybe you do know exactly what I'm doing. Um, but this is Second Peter chapter three, and uh, this is uh, I'll start in um, verse fifteen. Um, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother, the beloved brother Paul, also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks 
in them of these matters, right? Um, they are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. So obviously, Peter is familiar with Paul's writings. He's uh, read them, and he's talking about um, God, uh, God's patience, just as our uh, beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. Well, Paul talks about patience um, at least two times. Um, one is in Romans chapter 2, where he's talking about God's patience leading us to salvation, but the other one is, is here in Romans 9. And he use, uh, Peter uses the same word for uh, patience or long-suffering that, that Paul does. And he's also saying it's a very difficult passage to understand, which Romans 9 is a very difficult passage to understand. Romans 2 is a little simpler. Um, so my guess is that he's talking about this passage. And um, so if you look at Peter's overall context, he's talking about the, the God is uh, withholding his judgment on the ungodly, holding the destruction of the ungodly. Um, and then verse 9, obviously, is a core verse for the SEA society, right? The Lord is, is uh, not slow to fulfill his promise, but uh, as some men count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so um, Paul is a genius, right? And geniuses sometimes are hard to understand and sometimes often get misunderstood so you can see that in like second thessalonians where he's correcting some of the things that maybe were misunderstood in first thessalonians and second corinthians maybe he's correcting some things that went wrong when they're from the reading of first corinthians um you know the, even in romans there's you know um hey he, paul's basically saying hey you know some people are misrepresenting me by the saying that you know it's a license of sin and this sort of thing so the, there's several cases where paul genius isn't completely understood and here Peter I think is basically saying yep Paul's super complicated he's hard to understand and some people are making mistakes here but count this patience of the Lord as salvation the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises some men count slowness but it's patience to you not wishing that any should perish but all that all should be brought to re repentance so um, in, a, in a nutshell I, I don't uh, um, differ too much from, like, let's say, for example, Cran or Dunn, um, uh, Cranfield or Dunn in their commentaries on on this this specific aspect. Um, so it's a hardening, but it's a hardening that uh, can and does reverse sometimes. People change categories from vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy. Okay. I want to give Robert a chance to respond to some of those things. There's a whole lot that I want to say, yeah. but I'm the host, not the <laughs> guest. So, But there is one thing I want to push back on. Um, but before I push back on it, I want to ask you, uh, Dan, th this question. When you said that these vessels of wrath were vessels of wrath first and then prepared for destruction, how important is that to your argument? So... You made the claim, if I understood you correctly, yeah. that the so, vessels of wrath in verse 22 were vessels of wrath, and therefore, or at the very least, and then were prepared for destruction. And my question for you is, how important is that sequence of events to your reading? Um, not vital. So, but the, but let me see if I understand. So, it's the, the vessels of wrath are the ones that are prepared for destruction. Am I missing that? That's in 22. No, you're but not missing ahead. that, but that also but, the way you've just said it doesn't doesn't have the sequence, uh, the sequential language that you used earlier. So, so you, the, okay, so the the, the prayer for destruction is in the perfect tense, so it's completed before the action of the main verb, which would be um, the enduring or the long suffering. So the the preparation for destruction precedes the um, uh, the enduring the vessels of wrath, um, the the patience on them. So. What is important in terms of timing is that they're prepared for destruction before God has patience on them. That sequence of event is vital. 
Okay. Well, that's actually the right sequence of events, it seems to me. Um, but what doesn't seem to me is to follow is what you said earlier, which is that they were vessels of wrath before they were prepared for destruction. It seems to me that the reason they're vessels of wrath is because they were prepared for destruction. So what does God prepare for destruction? The vessels of wrath. Right. Am, am, vess I, am, I wrong, am I wrong about that? But the vessels of wrath are... Are individuals? Created. Yeah, they're the ones. Yeah. They're the, the ones he created. Out of clay. Um, but but remember the the point of or or how whatever more sort of meta an, um, analysis we make of the uh, Potter clay analogy, at the very least, what what it illustrates is that a people or or, or persons are prepared for a particular use. Right? They're, so, they're, they're made with a purpose. And that purpose, according to verse 22, for some, is destruction. And it's for that reason that the ones so prepared for destruction are vessels of wrath. That is their purpose. So this isn't a linguistic, it's more a, the a theological point, but I'm very concerned about what you just said. So um, make sure, let me make sure I don't misrepresent you because it's so important. But I believe that God is only, only gets mad at people because of sin. Um, do you disagree with that? No. Okay, good. I'm, I'm very glad I didn't misunderstand you there. Sure. Okay. But right. nevertheless, God, it, it, according to at least my um, uh, uh, belief in meticulous divine providence and, and all, all the rest of Calvinism, um, God prepares vessels for the purpose of, or at least in, in this context, for the purpose of showing them wrath. Now, he's not mad at them prior to their sinning, but he prepares them to be the sinners they are with the purpose of demonstrating his wrath. That's okay, it. so he... And if Sorry, I'm right about really quick, let me just finish my thought. And if I'm right about that, then prepared for destruction isn't um, isn't doesn't follow their being vessels of wrath. They go hand in hand. They are prepared for destruction because they are vessels of wrath, or vice versa. Anyway, go ahead. Okay, so here's where I think I'll bring back into the language itself, and I, and, and I'll push back a little, just a hair, on Robert's point of the genitive of uh, the eschatological genitive of the the wrath is the wrath of destruction itself. So because the reason why, yes, the, the wrath is going to be in, unleashed in hell in eschatological ju judgment, but the patience, the wrath is there. And I think verbally, the wrath is there, but God is holding back the actual manifestation of the wrath. And I think, I think verbally we can establish that point. Okay, I, and I'm not sure I, I follow, but but Robert, yeah, I've been doing a lot of talking now. Um, yeah. What are some thoughts you have on what had what Dan had to say? Okay, so first, when when we when we pay careful attention to what what it means when Paul says, um, as, as the ESV renders it, I I think is is pretty good in verse 22 that that God has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destructions. It it does not say that he's patient with them it says he endures them with patience and that is um uh to me it sounds a lot like what we get in romans 3 25 and 26 where god in his uh divine forbearance has had, had left uh sins previously committed unpunished right so so god has foresight he and he, he he puts up with them but it doesn't mean that he is being patient to them as though he he just really really wants to have mercy on them if they would just you know repent and 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 remold themselves and become uh vessels of of uh mercy prepared for glory uh so i i, I don't think that works and and so also that means the the connection to Second uh, Peter three, uh, he says that God's patience is for you, his audience, right? So 
however we would would spell out the exegetical details there it's a it, it's an interesting text um I, I i wouldn't be prepared to defend one interpretation over another uh but um the patience there has an object it is you the, the the people who peter expects to read this letter that's different from here the patience here is not the vessels of wrath um and uh so uh we can talk about god's patience towards uh the christian community that's different from uh him enduring with patience vessels of wrath um second uh, you said you think that the uh background here might be uh wisdom of solomon that just can't be the case dan with with all love and respect um if you read that text, Wisdom of Solomon 15, uh, verses 7 and 8, um, of course, the potter uh, needs with, with soft earth, you know, clay, and he fashions different kinds of vessels, some for clean use and some for contrary use. Verse 8, with misspent toil, these workers form feudal gods from the same clay. He's talking about idolatry. He's not talking about God's activity and forming human beings. He doesn't draw that analogy whatsoever, regardless of the fact that he uses the language of potter and vessels. And you, that, that's not how we do exegesis. That's not how we uh, determine uh, backgrounds and 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 uh, literary uh, influences by by counting up the commonality of words. We need to examine more critically the the the, the themes of the text, the meaning, to see whether it, it actually works with what Paul is saying. And uh, in comparing wisdom of Solomon and Romans 9 to 11 uh, in an important uh, essay, uh, John Barclay made this comment. He said, one could hardly ask for a more brutal or more direct attempt to undermine the moral and rational foundation in which wisdom had built its reading of history. Barclay's not a Calvinist, but he recognizes that Paul's uh, polemic in Romans 9 to 11 is like the polar opposite of the wisdom of Solomon's polemic in, in his, his broader context. Uh, so then when we, we go and look, and, and I don't know if I could um, uh, share my screen here real quick. Um, I think it might be helpful just to um, yeah, go for it. Just so readers can see, I I think it's so important to look at primary text. So, uh, let me just blow that blow this up here. Can you see that? It's my Word document right here. Okay, so so here's this is where I think we we find more promising background to to Paul's language, uh, specifically with um, when we get to verse thirteen. This is Sirach thirty three. Um, uh, like clay in the hands of the potter to be molded as he pleases. And this language, as he pleases, is very much like language that Paul uses here in Romans 8 and 9 and in other discourses that talk about divine election. Um, and this is about what God does at creation. So he, he uh, again, he, he creates, uh, that's, that's how it concludes. Look at the works of the Most High. They come in pair, the opposites of the other. God cre has created in such a way, and this is a wisdom motif. You can see this in the biblical wisdom. You can see it in uh, Ecclesiastes, but also in Proverbs 16:4, where it says that God has created the wicked for destruction, right? So the, the, the nature of creation in divine wisdom in wisdom literature is such that God has uh, created so that there would be these opposites. This is just a fundamental fact of the way that God has uh, created. And then when we get into some of the literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, I'm scrolling down here. This is from the Community Rule 1QS 11 through 22. Uh, it talks about God's mercies um, uh, and uh, drawing near to his mercies, etc. It makes some references, I think, also to the Exodus material. 
Um, and if I scroll down just to my underlined portion here, he says, uh, for without you, no behavior is perfect. And without your will, nothing comes to be. You have taught all knowledge and all that exists is so by your will beyond you. There is no one to oppose your counsel or uh, understand uh, any of your thoughts, gaze into the abyss of your mysteries. This should sound like the conclusion that Paul draws in Romans 11. Um, and then he goes on to say, uh, who can endure your glory? What indeed is the son of man among your marvelous deeds? Um, what shall be one uh, uh, born of woman be considered in your presence? Shaped from dust, uh, has he been maggots food uh, shall uh, be his dwelling. Uh, they, they have a very colorful uh, pessimistic uh, anthropology at Qumran, but um, molded clay uh, for dust uh, is his longing. What will the clay reply to the one shaped by hand? Uh, and what advice will he be able to understand? Doesn't that sound like what Paul, Paul is? They're both alluding back to Isaiah here. And, and this is very much what, what Paul is uh, saying as well. Uh, we can we can get into some more. I, I don't want to uh, take all this. This is uh, 1QH. Uh, you've, you have formed the spirit and activity you have determined. Um, uh, there are others as well that we could cite from, from the Qumran material. So uh, all that to say, Paul's use of the potter clay analogy is much closer than these more deterministic sounding texts. It's absolutely nothing like what we get in wisdom where it's talking about fu the feudal working of, of idol makers out of, out of clay. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, sir. To say as sort of um, obviously a, a biased um, hearer of what Robert was saying, it does strike me that what Paul is saying sounds an awful lot um, more like what we read in uh, Sirach 33 and in that Qumran scroll. So just one more, I'll reiterate for the viewer's sake. Um, ben, uh, ben Sirach says in Sirach 33 um, verse... Uh, uh, 13, as the clay is in the potter's hand to fashion it at his pleasure, so man is in the hand of him that made him to render to them as liketh him best. And then uh, uh, and then in that Qumran scroll, 1QS 11, 22, man is molded clay um, for dust is his longing. What will the clay reply in the one shaped by hand? So it does strike me as those two um, are uh, closer to the, both Paul's um, quotation and his um, uh, and the context then wisdom of Solomon and uh, some other texts in which a non-Calvinist reading might be a little bit more plausible. Um, what do you have to say in response to that, um, in response to the seeming, at least, similarities between this analogy and uh, Sirach and, and, uh, and the Qumran scroll? Okay, so I'd say one of these things is not like the other. Um, <laughs> I, I, I uh, do respect um, Sirach quite a bit, <clears throat> pardon me, and, uh, you know, it was originally published as part of the Apocrypha by Protestants, and it's obviously in the Orthodox canon and the Roman Catholic canon, and it's very valuable material. So, in some sense, I would, um, uh, I guess, make the effort to to, uh, to, to make a stand that uh, um, the wisdom of Solomon is not um, saying what uh, you, you think you uh, argue, are arguing that it's saying. Um, so I can get into specifics, but I should uh, switch gears and say, I don't see the Qumran has the same status. Um, it's not in anyone's canon. And not only that, it's um, 
wasn't well received by the Jews themselves. And the leader of uh, Qumran it was this uh, the quote-unquote teacher of righteousness, um, basically claimed to be a prophet, and he was receiving revelation directly from God, and uh, he was the infallible interpreter of the Hebrew scriptures and this sort of thing. And um, the uh, both the Jews and the Christians in the church, no, no one recognized him as a prophet. No one saw this stuff as inspired. So I'm much more leery there. Um, I'd say specifically on, on Qumran, the things that uh, and hey, let me let, let me take a step back. You guys are scholars. I'm not. Um, the, but there is some this sort of queasiness that that people have about this sort of thing. Um, and the what what we see. Let's let's say for example, um, um, I I read the. Um, their commentary on Habakkuk, Habakkuk, and the, the, the thought of the just shall live by faith. This leader of the, the Essenes basically said, this refers to me, and that means you have to believe me, right? And that, that's, that's the, that stuff like that really makes us, uh, really makes us nervous. And more to the point, um, more specifically to the, to the passages you quote, um, when I, when I looked at them, so this is, um, uh, I guess one uh, Q H seven nine fifteen seventeen, all of them basically talk about cause, uh, theistic determinism. Sorry, Chris, no, I almost said causal theistic determinism, but they all lead in or sum it up with that God was directly revealing to them these marvelous mysteries, right? Um, and he's he's not necessarily arguing this from the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, at least directly, he's he's saying that God is telling them this stuff, and and not only that, in these in the um, Qumran location, they found stacks of horoscopes, and and several scholars said that they they linked this fatalism to the stars and the rotations of the planets, and that they were using it to predict the future. So when you get into stuff like this, um, okay, I, but, I get I get very very nervous. Okay, but Dan, but, but let me let me make something clear I, neither robert nor i nor any other new testament scholar that thinks the um qumran literature lies in the or, or is is formative in the uh, or, or or influences the theology of the new testament none of us are saying that the dead sea scrolls are authoritative or even necessarily that yeah. paul and other authors of the new testament saw it as such all we're yeah. saying is that um in the second temple judaism um and its literature that was the backdrop to the writing of the New Testament um, that, that influenced the thinking um, to one degree or another of the authors of the New Testament and the, and the people uh, spoken of therein. Um, when, when we look at the uh, phrases and idioms that New Testament authors use, when we look at the theology reflected therein, um, we have to look at all of the bodies of literature, all the bodies of thought that would have contributed to the, to, to the thinking that produced that writing. And one such uh, element in that influence would have been this Qumranic material. That doesn't mean that it's authoritative yeah. or that we should believe it by uh, just, you know, full stop. Yeah. It's just saying it influenced the writing of the New Testament in certain ways. Yeah. And, I don't, and I don't think there's any controversy over the fact that the Qumranic material has influenced the writing of the New Testament. And if that's true, then that seems to negate your, seems to me, to negate your entire response that you just offered to the Qumran scroll. What, what do you think? I, I, um, I think it is a very important historical background. It's very useful yeah. for setting the context. 
But what I am concerned with is, um, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but is reading uh, Qumran theology too much into the New Testament? That's where I, that's where I would um, would push push back. Um, I think you could. Uh, anyways, I'm I'm very yeah. comfortable drawing the line the other direction. Paul yeah. is saying this, and it looks like what's being talked about in Qumran. Yeah. What I what I don't like is here's this con big level concept in 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 Qumran, and we're we're going to read that into Paul in some sense. And I, I'm not saying you guys are doing this, but the the uh, people uh, the Essenes were determinists, and that would be re reading determinism into the text of the New Testament, which you know, we, we just shouldn't do. Well, let, let, let me follow up with this. So, you know, you, you made the point about canon and authority, and, and we're not saying that, you know, the, the idea of a canon is is almost sort of a, a modernistic concept in, in some ways. Like, nobody walked around with a leather-bound Bible, some of which had the Apocrypha in it, and some of it didn't in, in, in Paul's day, right? So uh, there, were, there were a lot of different ways that authority worked. Uh, you had, obviously, the divinely inspired, you know, Hebrew Bible that was uncontroversial, but even then the, the the Sadducees didn't accept the prophetic books, right? And so even that was in in flux in, in some ways from from Jewish place to Jewish place. Um, the the way we might think about um, the way the the Qumran texts can work, um, other like pseudepigraphical texts that we know were majorly influenced on the New Testament, such as the um, Enochic literature and other um, apocalyptic literature, is is almost like the way that you. This is an analogy I came up with. I don't know how helpful it'll it'll prove to be, but um, the 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 doctrinal statement on your church website, right? Like that tells us something about the way that you interpret the Bible, right? So you don't hold it as the Bible, but it tells us about how you interpret the Bible, right? And and so um, a lot of Jewish traditions work that way in the Second Temple period. There were there were different schools of interpretation, and and Paul talks or not Paul Josephus talks about these as as three philosophies. And there are there are two issues that he raises to, um, and, and you should read Josephus when when you when you get a chance. There are two issues that he highlights as the basis for differences of opinion among these Jewish philosophies. One is uh, the nature of resurrection and the afterlife. The other is predestination and free will. These are the things that were the, the big hot button issues. And the reason why then we're, that's so helpful is we can, we can lay out these sources and, and say, oh, okay, here, here we have what looked to be Essene sources, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and other uh, texts that seem deterministic. Uh, here we have what might be um, um, uh, strongly you know, free will affirming uh, texts and some that are kind of nebulous, right? Like with, with, with some of the Pharisaical literature. But uh, now let's, let's, let's look at Paul and say, where, where does he fit in, in these? So for example, um, uh, in, in uh, other places in Sirach, and I, I should make this point, Sirach is not a uh, thoroughgoing deterministic text. I think it's got deterministic themes and I, I, I think it's broadly deterministic, but it's nothing like what we get in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm a little unique in my, my reading of, of Sirach. I can quote other scholars with me, but, um, um, but it has these overt affirmations of free will. Paul has the opposite in Romans 9. It does not depend on the one willing. 
right? Um, and elsewhere, I think Paul will talk a lot about what men cannot do and never about about the, the power of the choice. Paul never has anything like that anywhere in his writings. Um, but then he has these these really distinctive phrases and and uh, idioms and analogies, like, like the Potter Clay analogy, that we only see elsewhere used that way in these deterministic texts. Um, a, a, a fun thing to do would be to compare the, the um, doxology or, or him in Ephesians 1 to some of those uh, um, uh, Thanksgiving hymns in 1QH. And it's amazing to see how many uh, concepts and themes that he takes over that are like distinctively sectarian. Like he, he, he um, uh, you know, throughout his letters, uh, he talks about us as the children of light versus uh, those who are in darkness that is like not found anywhere else but but in this apocalyptic uh, deterministic kind of uh, material that we get in the second temple period so um, th there's just so much work there that, that could be done I really want to challenge you to you know go back and 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 look at the relevance of, of some of this material not not in a way of suspicion I don't think the way you're understanding the the function of the teacher of righteousness is is quite right. There's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, secondary literature you could read on this. I could I could point you to some stuff, but um, what we're doing with comparative literature is or, or uh, these comparisons is is trying to figure out. Uh, whose uh, expressions, linguistic, um, uh, contextual, thematic, um, and, and all sorts of other things, does Paul's writing most look like? The differences are probably more important than the similarities. And so Paul is not just like a, a Qumran Essene. I don't. I wouldn't even say that that we could argue that Paul read the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? I don't think there's any way to prove that historically. Uh, but that he was influenced by an ideology like what we find there, that I would say is indisputable. Um, and uh, I'm not alone on that. And um, so anyways, um, we, we, let, we can go, go back. Let me, let, 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 let me ask you one question, yeah, Robert. Yeah. Um, so the teacher of righteousness basically claimed to be receiving word from God, revelation from God. Yeah. Um, was he so a... <laughs> right, right. So yes, yeah. so and I think Paul did, and I think uh, the the, the yeah. teacher of righteousness did not. So, yeah. do you think that the teacher of righteousness was receiving revelation from God? Was he a true prophet or a false prophet? So they they like the early Christians saw themselves as uh, an eschatological community. They unlike the only only they and the Christians talk about being in the new covenant. Only they and the Christians talk about themselves, you know, forming this remnant, you know, of of, of eschatological Israel as opposed to to those outside. Um, so th there there are a lot of very fascinating analogies there. Um, uh, I would have to examine you know, the specific, like some specific quotes about what he's saying. Uh, there were lots of people, and, and, and the concept of a prophet is not exactly what a lot of modernistic um, understandings of what a prophet is. They they saw themselves as inspired interpreters. There's no question about that. And so um, I, I, but I, in some sense, it, it was far less uh, divine than than what we imagine when we talk about a prophet. So you know, if you if you press me, I'd have to say, yeah, I could probably show you some areas where I'd say this guy was a mistaken false prophet or or, or whatever. It doesn't mean from that that the community got nothing right theologically, and it seems still that the early Christians, just as they took over 
concepts and ideas from from Pharisaic Judaism because you know like they 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 came out of that soil. It was a, a Jewish movement. They 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 carry over some ideas and they they baptize them into Christ and and um and and that you know comes to to shape uh, their theology as an entity in and of itself. So we, we have to try to be more objective and more historical rather than making judgments about, oh, well, we can't look at that because uh, there, there's some heretical or false prophecy, you know, stuff going on over there. There, there may very well have been, uh, but, but that, that's not historical analysis. You know, we, we, we have to try to be dispassionate in some ways to, to uh, you know, be a little more objective about what's happening there. Oh no, I disagree. I mean, we should be very passionate about putting down false false prophets. And now, in the context of reading them as well, this is a false prophet, and here's what he had to say. Yes, it's very interesting historically, but but I think that, um, like I said, it can give you great background and context for what Paul is saying. But it 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 really does move away, and it's very different than Sirach. So we probably should. Well, I, let me follow up yeah. before we before we wrap up because actually we're, we're close to where I have to end. But um, yeah. I, I'm a little bit um, troubled by the notion that if somebody is a false prophet, um, everything they say must be dismissed. I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but it is what it sounds like you're saying. And you know, look the the um, the Watchtower organization that heads the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're they're uh, they're the equivalent of a false prophet, um, and yet they teach monotheism. Should we reject monotheism because Jehovah's Witnesses led by the Watchtower organization are monotheists? I mean, um, no, no. Uh, so, so, so the point that I'm getting at is, yeah, even if um, the founder of the Essene community is, uh, uh, is a false pro or was a false prophet, nevertheless, the writings of the Essene community uh, that the, 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 are the, the thoughts, the, the, the way of thinking captured in the writings of the Essene community has clearly and indisputably influenced the writing of the New Testament in places and I see no reason for thinking that we should reject it all just because uh, allegedly that one person was a prophet. Yeah. And, and, and one, more, one more historical point real quick uh, uh, there's a really good book called Beyond the Essene Hypothesis by Gabriel Bacchini. He's a, um, a professor at the University of Michigan and um, he shows and, and I should make this point Essenism is much bigger than Qumran so not every Essene would have been a follower of the teacher of righteousness or, or whatever. So what we get, most scholars believe, what we get at Qumran is sort of, you know, one of the most extremist, probably one of the most extremist fringe parts of the movement. But they do have some literature, uh, including the Treatise on the Two Spirits, which is a very important pre predestinarian text that was probably um, a summary of, of what the broader Essene movement came to believe. So um, it, even if I say get rid of the teacher of righteousness you still have broader essenism uh that that would have uh, been uh, an ideology on the table for paul and and josephus and other uh historical sources they have nothing but uh praiseworthy words for the essenes they didn't regard them as a bunch of heretics they commend their their godliness and uh their their lifestyles if you if you look at those sources so uh i i just don't think that that works at all Okay, so uh, just to just to respond real quickly, so let's say um, two thousand years from now, someone finds you know a printed out version of Robert's blog, and they also find the the Book of Mormon, right? And yes, there's true things in the Book of Mormon, but if they start to interpret Robert's blog in in light of the Book of Mormon, that's a problem, right? And, and Robert, you'd be the first person to object to that. 
But and and so that's that that's the concern I have now. Like once you once you recognize yes, it's a false prophet, and and as um, we, we should be protecting the flock of God and that sort of thing. But uh, but in that context, in in light of this being false prophecy, yes, we can start to uh, find whatever. Um, true parts we we can and helpful bits that we can but uh we have to be very cautious and in syrac is not that way um so okay. i'll leave I'm, it at that yeah and i'm gonna let you have the final word on that robert you and i both would have more to say i'm sure um and indeed maybe we could do around three if you guys are interested we'll talk about that offline um uh, but as i've got to go in a few minutes i want to um bring things to a close at least on this part two um and do what i did last time which is again give you each just a minute or two to give some uh, a parting message of sorts some final thoughts uh, that you'd like people to be thinking about after today after they've watched today's recording um and and then offline we can talk about about the poss uh, possible part three. So Robert, your one to yeah. two minute final thoughts. Sure. Um, keep keep reading, keep studying. Um, and this is for the audience. I know Dan's going to do that. Um, but um, you know, I the deeper I go, the longer I look at it, uh, the more information I find, and it 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 um, it shows me that I was wrong about some things that I assumed, and it reinforces uh, other things that that I believed. Uh, study Greek so that you don't have to take the opinions of, of uh, scholars um, and so that you're not uh, subject to confirmation bias in the use of your sources. Uh, do historical exegesis. Learn about the Second Temple Jewish background and the, the debates that Paul was uh, moving into. We are really blessed to have a, a wealth of information available to us. Uh, get off the internet, get some books, get in the library, uh, look at some real good sources by credentialed published peer-reviewed scholars and uh, do the hard work of learning these ancient dead languages uh, so that you can you can uh, learn what Paul had to say here but not just on this issue on on all sorts of other issues um, uh, bringing in what Paul says here I think he in Romans 9 to 11 he's getting back behind justification to explain Israel's unbelief and when he does that he talks about God's free and unconditioned mercy he talks about God's uh, naming call that marks out the people of God uh, marks out the faithful remnant and it was done uh, without regard to any human conditions Paul is emphatic about that not the one who wills not the one who strives but God who has mercy he has mercy on whom he will and he hardens whom he will uh, etc the, the call creates out of those who are not his people it creates his people um, and so uh, all that is is uh, what I think Paul is is driving at here in order to say that God is doing all this to to reveal his glory the uh, in the in the name of Jesus to the world to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles and he will effectively save a remnant of uh, Israelites in the future uh, but all of that is undergirded by this this assumption of, of uh, a sovereign divine determinism that that I think Paul uh, lays out on the table for us here in this in this uh, uh, beautiful magisterial section of uh, his most important letter to the Romans so. all right thanks Robert uh, Dan your your one or two minute uh, final thoughts as well Yes, thank you. So, and thank you guys for excellent discussion. I really appreciate you guys. So, um, you know, Paul, Romans 9 is extremely complicated. When I was first challenged by a Calvinist on it, I accepted Calvinism because I didn't quite understand Romans 9, frankly. But when I was presented with a Calvinistic interpretation, um, it kind of it made some sense of the text. And so, I didn't have anything else to go by, and I was just confused by it. It is hard to understand, but I think that is exactly what Peter's point is. And then um, Peter is is kind of uh, um, laying out that 
you know, God does want to save everybody and that God's patience is a showing of mercy. God, God does have wrath. Let's take him seriously. He is sovereign. You don't want to be in a position where you're hardened, right? Um, he has wrath on sin. He'll, he can also have mercy on sin. And if you turn to his son, um, God will have mercy on you. So thank you very much. Well, those are great. I appreciate that. And um, I'll offer a final thought as well and just say that I think the kind of discussion that the three of us have been having for a grand total of something like a little over three hours now and, and may indeed continue into a part three is exactly the kind of conversation that um, Christians who disagree on an important topic like this um, should carry out their conversations. Um, you know, I, I far too often see both in the Calvinism, non-Calvinism debate and in other debates, the hell debate, the tongues debate and a host of other debates. I see Christians really tearing each other apart and going into conversations like these with little to no intention beyond proving the other person wrong. And I get the genuine sense that all three of us are here with a genuinely open mind and heart, willing to hear each other out, wanting to not wanting to defend a particular position, but rather to work together as Christians to try to figure out what God has inspired Paul to write. And, and I think that's um, really commendable. And, and I think that we have had a conversation and may continue the conversation in a way that should hopefully model the kind of charitable, loving, brotherly conversations that we as Christians should be able to have where we disagree. And so I just want to thank both of you, Robert and Dan, for helping me to make that kind of conversation possible and, and for helping me to model uh, healthy, charitable debate between Christians for our viewers. And, uh, and I look forward to continuing the discussion one way or another. Um, both of you, thanks again for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that. Um, those of you who have stuck around for the entire discussion, uh, for whatever it's worth, we are not planning to do a round three. We think that we covered all the important material on Romans 9 in the three and a half roughly hours that, uh, that the three of us talked. Um, but I do hope to have um, Robert and Dan on possibly at different times, whatever, to discuss other passages, as well as other Calvinist and non-Calvinist guests. Uh, so stay tuned for those in the future. But rest assured, not every episode of The Apologetics is going to be about uh, the Calvinism-non-Calvinism debate. As I said, two weeks from today, I'll present a uh, my Arminian, sorry, not Arminian, my amillennialist reading of the uh, thousand years discussed in Revelation chapter 20. It's not, it's probably not the amillennialist reading that you're familiar with. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, superior to both the more typical amillennialist reading and the premillennialist one. Uh, so tune in two weeks from today, which will be um, November 30th, Monday, November 30th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, and I'll look forward to covering that topic with you. And as I said in the beginning of this episode, uh, if you want to get early access to the recordings from the Rethinking Hell conference a week ago, um, go to patreon.com slash rethinkinghell and sign up to be a patron. And uh, please do keep me in your prayers as I try to land a publisher for the book project um, that... Uh, hold on. Oh, Robert's asking, I'm interested in that. Are you with Beal or did you go another direction. I'm not sure what you mean, Robert. Um, can you elaborate? Do you mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what you mean. Do you mean that book project that I mentioned? 
let me know. Uh, but, uh, but while I'm waiting for Robert to explain what he means by the question he asked in the chat, uh, please do pray for me in this book project that I'm hoping to find a publisher for. Uh, I plan to send out uh, proposals beginning f this coming Friday, beginning with IVP Academic. And I'm optimistic, but not at all confident that IVP Academic will pick it up. Um, and if it does, then when that happens, uh, I'll be able to announce details. So uh, hopefully... Hopefully that materializes, and I appreciate your prayers. I'm still not seeing, Robert, your, your clarification in the chat when you said you're interested in that. Are you with Beal, or do you go another... Oh, okay, you're asking about my amillennialist reading. Right. So Beal and, I would say, the vast majority of amillennialists think that the first resurrection in Revelation chapter 20 refers to... Uh, martyred Christians uh, going to heaven, the intermediate state, disembodied uh, when they die. Um, and then the second resurrection, or alternatively, that it refers to um, the uh, the fact of regeneration, uh, the, the regeneration in which God takes out the Christian's uh, former heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. So those are the two typical amillennialist readings. It either refers to regeneration or to uh, Christians reigning in the intermediate state until uh, the thousand years is over. And then the second resurrection amillennialists recognize is a bodily resurrection. So you've got some sort of spiritual resurrection in the first resurrection and bodily resurrection in the second resurrection. That's precisely why I think that the that amillennialist reading is the least likely of all the millennial views readings of Revelation 20. Um, and I'll get into that more when I present my reading in a couple of weeks from now. Um, I don't want to say, honestly, what my amillennialist reading is uh, right now because I want to um, offer my full case for it and and, uh, and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. So hopefully, Robert, you'll forgive me for that, but just know that no, I do not take the reading of Beale or any other amillennialist who thinks that the first resurrection is a reference either to regeneration or to reigning with Christ disembodied in the intermediate state. I think there's an even better reading than that, one that does far better justice to uh, to the text, uh, even than premillennialism as well. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of a teaser. Robert, uh, you come back in two weeks to watch uh, this show. Uh, to find out. Again, that's uh, Monday, November 30th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, and I will look forward to uh, having you all back then. Thank you so much for joining me, and for those of you who have tuned in live or watched the, the episodes after they've been um, fully streamed and are available on the channel, um, and you've been doing that for multiple episodes, thank you so much. Please, if you enjoy what you see, click the like button and subscribe and spread the word around. Um, I, I hope to continue to do this and get it back up to the kind of popularity that the The Apologetics podcast was um, before uh, I stopped doing the podcast several years ago. Uh, so spread the word. Um, and uh, if you would like to have me cover a particular topic or have some particular guests on or something like that, then just shoot me an email at the email address on your screen, theapologetics at hotmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you next time. God bless. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else.
If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...